Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Its first minister, a former slave named Charles Octavius Booth, wrote that the members were people of money and refinement. From the beginning, Dexter Avenue operated as a deacon's church, meaning that the lay officers took advantage of the full sovereignty claimed by each Baptist congregation. They were free to hire any preacher they wanted, trained or untrained, fit or unfit, without regard to bishops or other church hierarchy. The Baptists had no such hierarchy at all, nor any educational requirements for the pulpit, and this fact had contributed mightily to the spread of the denomination among unlettered whites and Negroes alike. Anyone with lungs and a claim of faith could become a preacher. And as the ministry was the only white-collar trade open to Negroes during slavery, when it was a crime in all the southern states to teach Negroes to read or allow them to engage in any business requiring the slightest literacy, preachers and would-be preachers competed fiercely for recognition. For most of the next century, the Negro church served not only as a place of worship, but also as a bulletin board to a people who owned no organs of communication, a credit union to those without banks, and even a kind of people's court. These and a hundred extra functions further enhanced the importance of the minister, creating opportunities and pressures that forged what amounted to a new creature and caused the learned skeptic W.E.B. Du Bois to declare at the turn of the 20th century that the preacher is the most unique personality developed by the Negro on American soil. The Board of Deacons at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church made it a tradition to choose the best-trained and most ambitious ministers. Competition for the post was so fierce that titanic struggles after the fashion of those between European monarchs and nobles became almost a routine of church life at Dexter. Nearly a dozen preachers came and went in the first decade. By contrast, the First Baptist Church, Colored, remained a preacher's church, with only three pastors during its first 57 years of existence. Over the next 30 years, the friction between the two churches diminished to the point of religious, if not social, cooperation. Small meetings of important community leaders tended to take place at Dexter, larger meetings in the spacious sanctuary at First Baptist. The congregations and their contrasting traditions were remarkably stable. Officers at both churches tended to be grandchildren of those who had marched out of the white church in the first exodus, and children of those who had separated over issues of mud and class. Moreover, their personalities tended to reflect these differences. William Beasley, church secretary at First Baptist, was genial, strong, outgoing, from a long line of working people. R.D. Nesbitt, church clerk at Dexter, was wiry and erect, an insurance executive of light tan skin, well-dressed and professional, reserved with strangers and even some of his friends. A further difference between them was that Nesbitt and his pulpit committee were about to begin a run of hard luck that would stand out as an ordeal even in the contentious history of Dexter's relations with its pastors. In the late summer of 1945, Nesbitt traveled for the first time and only time in his life to the annual meeting of the National Baptist Convention, its five million members making up the largest association of Negroes in the world. 
As always, the five-day meeting was an extravaganza unnoticed by whites except the hotel managers who appreciated the attendance records consistently set by upwards of 15,000 Negro preachers, choir members, and church officials. That year, Nesbitt went home with the name of a prestigious, highly trained candidate for the vacant pulpit at Dexter, a man further recommended to the church's tastes by his attendance at no less than five colleges and by the possession of four names, Alfred, Charles, Livingston, Arbowin. Six months later, after Dexter's usual painstaking selection process, Arbowin assumed his duties. Among the deacons, worries spread privately but quickly when Reverend Arbowin arrived in Montgomery with a wife whose existence had somehow escaped the background investigation. Matters worsened when inquiries turned up other Arbowin wives. When Arbowin took leave to attend the 1946 National Baptist Convention, Mrs. Arbowin began so flagrant a friendship with a soldier from Maxwell Air Force Base that the deacons called her in for a private meeting even before Arbowin returned. Mrs. Arbowin interpreted their courtly, painfully ornate inquiry to administer a profound shock to the deacons, bearing her bruised shoulders and legs, telling them that she was the victim of beatings in her own home and declaring herself firmly unrepentant. Confronted with a demand for his resignation, Reverend Arbowin refused and responded that his private affairs were his own business. The deacons fought back with a lawsuit seeking his removal under a judicial order of secrecy. They were victorious both in court and in the press. Not a word of the case reached the newspapers, Negro or white. Nesbitt and the Dexter Avenue deacons waited nearly a year before seeking a new minister. Fortune fell to them when they did, in the form of a recommendation from a new music professor at Alabama State College, the Negro school that had been founded in Dexter's basement and from whose faculty the church membership was largely drawn. Altona Trent Johns was a pianist and music teacher of some renown, daughter of a college president, member in good standing of the Atlanta Negro aristocracy from its early 20th century flourishing on Sweet Auburn Avenue and, most important to Nesbitt, wife of one of the most brilliant scholar preachers of the modern age, Vernon Johns. Negroes placed him in the foremost triumvirate of their preachers along with Mordecai Johnson and Howard Thurman. Through Mrs. Johns, Nesbitt invited the eminent preacher to deliver a trial sermon. The church was packed when the imposing figure of Vernon Johns rose to the pulpit, recited a long passage of scripture without looking at the Bible, and then held the congregation spellbound for half an hour without a pause or benefit of notes. Dexter's stolid deacons were accustomed to quality, but in Johns they recognized a mind of a higher order altogether. Upon learning that Johns wanted to join his wife in Montgomery, they suspended precedent for the first time in Nesbitt's memory and offered Johns their pulpit without an investigation or a second trial sermon. Johns moved into the parsonage on South Jackson Street in October 1948. His behavior pitched the entire church into four years of awe, laughter, inspiration, fear, and annoyance. For Nesbitt, the responsible deacon, Johns became the most exquisite agony he had ever known in the church. 
Vernon Johns was merely another invisible man to nearly all whites. But to the invisible people themselves, he was the stuff of legend. The deepest mysteries of existence and race rubbed vigorously together within him, heating a brain that raced constantly until the day he died. His ancestry was a jumble of submerged edges and storybook extremes. During slavery, his father's father was hanged for cutting his master in two with a scythe, and even eight years later it was whispered in the Johns family that the hunting dogs would not approach the haunted spot where the murder had occurred. Born in 1892, Vernon Johns grew up outside Farmville in Prince Edward County, Virginia. The area lay at the extreme northern boundary of the rich agricultural Black Belt, and Vernon Johns always clung to the belief that farming was the baseline of independence and prosperity. Johns had a square head and jaw, flaring nostrils, a barrel chest, and huge hands that he joked were like Virginia hams. He looked like the farmer he was, except that he always wore scholarly horn-rimmed glasses. Poor eyesight caused him to vow as a youth that he would read the small print of the Bible only once. Usually he listened to others read out loud, and he first displayed extraordinary gifts as a child by reciting from memory long passages he had heard only once or twice. He would recite poetry behind the plow and scrounge books to read at night. He used these skills and his gumption to talk his way into several schools, including Oberlin College in Ohio. After graduation, Johns enrolled in the Graduate School of Theology at the University of Chicago, headquarters of the Social Gospel Theologians. Then he stepped back into the restricted universe of jobs open to Negroes, where his fame as a religious scholar and preacher quickly brought him offers.